Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show 380. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is Science News with Mr. JJ Campanella. Then we have the main fiction, which is, remember, young Jeremy played or did an interview with Grimdark Magazine last week. Well, we've got one of their contributors, T.R. Napa, who's on this show as well. We're going to play The Line by T.R. Napa, which was originally in that Grimdark magazine. Then right at the end, we have another interview with Jeremy, with Bain Books editor Brian Thomas Schmidt. There you go. That is all in Starship Sova's 380. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Before that, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology, who is now able to supply hosted exchange services for solicitors and legal firms in the UK who need to use the criminal justice secure email. Now, that is a big deal because I don't think there's that many of them in the kind of UK, this, this criminal justice secure email. I know I was talking to Clive, you know, kind of chewing the fat with Clive and, and his Octagon Technology and he was mentioning they were trying for that. And I got an email a couple of days ago saying it, the kind, and it's a hard thing to get. Do you know what I mean? So, and it, it, there's only a few. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure there's only come three or something who've got this kind of access to kind of use this criminal justice secure email. So just a big <laughs> Octagon Technologies there. Well done for securing that. So they, like I say, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technologies. They were so kind and kind of helping, you know, get SofaCon off the ground as well. So do pop over there. There will be a link to Octagon Technology as well. So we're going to kick straight off with our very own science newsman, Mr. J.J. Campanella, Jim Sir. Greetings and springtime benedictions, my multifariously diastatic listeners. And welcome to this March 2015 Science News Update. I'm your host for this chronically inappropriated science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. <sighs> First off, an apology to any diabetics out there. I did not mean to mistakenly characterize your disease in last month's podcast. The lovely and talented Ms. Diane Severson Mori who should be familiar to long-time Starship Sofa listeners, pointed out to me that diabetics are not characterized as being hypoglycemic. In fact, the disease was first discovered um, by taste, 
because there was too much sugar in their urine and concomitantly in their blood. Diane says correctly, quote, I'm afraid the result of an insulin deficiency is hyperglycemia or high blood sugar, not hypoglycemia, just like in type 2 diabetes, which is the reason the two very different diseases have the same name in the first place, unquote. I explained my mistake rather pathetically away to Diane by telling her this. I think I did it because a few weeks back, one of my best friends with diabetes went into serious shock because his blood sugar levels dropped precipitously down into the single digit range. His wife told me that he actually had close to a psychotic episode when he let his blood sugar drop so low. Anyway, I suspect I was thinking of him when I made that statement in the science news segment. Uh, Sorry about that. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. So let's start out the evening with a really cool story. Um, New, highly effective antibiotics on the horizon. Yay! A new study was just published at the end of February in the journal Nature, which describes a new, quote, a new antibiotic that kills pathogens without detectable resistance, at least so far. Dr. Kim Lewis of Northeastern University and her research group made the discovery. Many decades ago, after Alexander Fleming had first discovered penicillin, and it then came into popular use at the end of World War II, Fleming actually predicted that there would be a time when resistant bacterial strains would arise because we were killing off all the sensitive strains. Prophetically, he stated that we would then have serious problems because we would not be able to get rid of those resistance strains quite so easily. And lo and behold, it doth came to pass. Well, widespread introduction of antibiotics transformed medicine, providing effective cures for the most prevalent diseases of the time. But along with those wonder drugs... Even just 10 years later, by the late 1950s, there were reports of resistance to the various drugs. Resistance development limits the useful lifespan of antibiotics. And one way to counter resistance is to constantly and consistently come up with new antibiotics. There are two problems with that. First, the drug companies really stopped looking for new antibiotics at some point because they thought that We've got enough antibiotics, and they seem to work great. And they slowed down their production of looking for new antibiotics. They're picking this up again. But the other problem is there are limits to how many new antibiotics can be developed at a time. Antimicrobial drug discovery is, well, it's very difficult. And it's due to poor penetration of compounds into bacterial cells. It's hard for scientists, chemists, to develop drugs that will easily enter bacterial cells. The way to get around the problem is to use natural antibiotics that actually evolved in nature to do exactly what we have trouble doing in the laboratory. Natural antibiotics actually evolved to breach that barrier of target bacteria. And most antibiotics introduced in hospitals were discovered by screening soil bacteria that could be grown. The limit on new antibiotic discovery in the recent past has been the inability to grow most soil bacteria in the laboratory. They simply are very picky about where they will grow and how they will grow and under what conditions they'll grow and to what extent they'll grow. 
About 99% of bacteria grow in soil, and to date, there has not been an effective method to culture them in a lab. This changed recently, however, when Lewis and her research group teamed up with the Novo Biotic Corporation to develop a unique growth chamber for culturing soil bacteria. They call the device the iChip, and it enables the growth of bacteria that can usually only grow in soil. Following production of a colony, the bacteria can then be transferred to in vitro culture in the lab the way you do with most other bacteria. Using this technique, the authors identified a new bacterial species and genus. This is Elfteria terra, and it produces an antibiotic called tertiobactin. Now, take that uh, pronunciation with a bit of salt. Tertiobactin displayed excellent activity against gram-positive bacteria, including Clostridium difficile and Bacillus anthracis. The way it works is by inhibiting peptidoglycan synthesis. Peptidoglycans are sugars that are used to help construct the cell wall of the gram-positive bacteria. Without that component, the cell wall is weakened and the gram-positive bacteria die as it can no longer grow and divide. Although it may seem the breakthrough here is the new antibiotic, it's not. New antibiotics are awesome, but it will just be a few years before our microscopic enemies become resistant to anything that you throw at them again. No, the big breakthrough here is the ability to grow just about any soil bacteria in the laboratory now. That means not just a single new antibiotic, but the promise of a whole string of antibiotics for years to come. This is good news. Next story, electric eels. I remember when I was a kid, I loved going to the Seneca Park Zoo. It sounds like a tiny little place, but it was actually a pretty decent zoo. It's much bigger now. One of the coolest exhibits they had was an electric eel. And it was not just that it was an electric eel. I mean, look at the electric eel. Isn't he cute? I remember the zookeeper putting an electrode into the tank with the eel and the eel actually lighting up a light bulb. I still remember this clearly after more than 40 years because it was just the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. I mean, an animal with the ability to create electric charges. And I have wondered ever since how an animal can build up that much charge and use it at will. Well, this month in the journal Science, Dr. Kenneth Catania of Vanderbilt University has clarified many of the mysteries of the electric eel and explained at least some of the things I've wondered about since childhood. In the swamps and creeks of the South American river basins, the electric eel lurks in the muddy depths. It's so powerful it can paralyze animals up to the size of a horse with its electrical discharges. And it's been the subject of countless experiments over hundreds of years. And even though it's been around and studied for a very long time, amazingly, we still have very little idea of how the eel actually uses its electric organ to capture prey. We do know that the electric eel is capable of producing three types of electrical discharges. First, a slow, low-intensity mode while it's exploring its environment. Second, pairs or triplets of high-intensity pulses, which have no known use. And then, finally, an all-out high-intensity mode consisting of dozens of pulses over a few seconds to capture prey or defend itself against attacks. A major hurdle to understanding electric eel predatory behavior 
is that much of it simply occurs too quickly for the human eye to detect. Dr. Catania decided to overcome the limitations of the human eye by using a high-speed camera to track the behavior of electric eels as they try to capture small fish. Catania noticed that very quickly after the eel's first discharge of the high-intensity burst, prey were paralyzed. And the question then became, how quickly does that incapacitation occur? In order to address the question, Catania placed an experimentally incapacitated prey fish into the aquarium, separated from the eel by an, an auger wall, which, while acting as a physical barrier, was still able to conduct electrical fields. When the eel generated the volleys of high-voltage pulses that it normally uses to capture prey, the prey fish tensed up. However, when Catania injected a drug into the prey that inactivates the connections between the nervous system and its muscles, this response no longer occurred. What that showed was that the eel incapacitates its prey by inducing electrical activity in the nervous system, which in turn makes the muscles contract uncontrollably. When Catania looked more carefully at the eel's predatory behavior, he saw that in complex environments, pairs or triplets of discharges often came before the high-voltage burst. Moreover, the doublets and triplets always produced movement in the prey. Catania asked whether this mode could serve to detect prey under difficult conditions by forcing them to reveal themselves. In order to test this, he put incapacitated prey fish in a plastic bag in the aquarium, which electrically isolated them from the eel. Then, Catania connected the prey fish with electrodes, which allowed him to induce the movement in the prey fish himself, whatever he wanted. Catania noticed that when an eel fired a doublet or a triplet, it would only attack the prey when Catania induced movement in the fish. This presumably shows that the eel uses those doublet or triplets to confirm that it is actually dealing with live prey, rather than one of many inanimate objects in the complex environment that the murky bottom of the swamp might provide. The story elucidates how the electric eel uses its electric organ to draw out, detect, and incapacitate its prey. Furthermore, it comprehensively shows that we should all be grateful that we're not small fish in the Amazonian basin. Next story. Yetis. In 1954, the British Daily Mail newspaper sent a scientific expedition along with embedded reporter Ralph Izzard, to the Himalayas. And their mission was to track down a yeti, a so-called abominable snowman. The zoologists found some interesting animals, including a new species of vole. And a scout for the team heard a story from someone who said that they'd seen a yeti just a few months before. The creature was a, quote, small squat beast the size of a teenage boy covered with stiff red-brown and black hair, a flat face like a monkey, no tail, and it could walk on two legs, unquote. The full expedition team later found some tracks and hair and saw something that looked very much like a bear. In the end, there was nothing conclusive. But it also wasn't enough to end the search for the elusive beast known as uh, the Bigfoot or Abominable Snowman or whatever, and the search has continued ever since. 
You may remember that I told you a story last year about Oxford University geneticist, Dr. Brian Sykes and his colleagues. He announced uh, about this time last year that he had found evidence of a mysterious animal in the Himalayas that might be the source of the Yeti legend. The beast wasn't a new species of primate, as had long been conjectured, but a bear. Their evidence was DNA from two small hair samples that matched a short stretch of DNA from the jawbone of a 40,000-year-old polar bear. Scientists immediately began questioning the findings, though, and now a reanalysis of the genetic data by Dr. Alessier Gutierrez of the Smithsonian and Dr. Ronald Pine of the University of Kansas in the latest issue of the journal Zookeys concludes that there is no mystery bear species in the Himalayas. They compared the DNA from two hair samples attributed to the mystery bear species with that of nearly every known living bear species, except panda, and two extinct bears. The two hair samples instead match the DNA of the brown bear, Ursus arctos, which is native to the area where the hairs were found. There were similarities not to the extinct polar bear species, but to the brown bear and to the polar bear. These two bear species are closely related, which is one reason we can get pizzlies and growler bears. There's a lot of overlap in their DNA. The mystery bear's DNA falls within that natural variation Gutierrez and Pine found. And since there's a rare endangered subspecies of brown bear called Ursus arctos isabellinus that lives in the Himalayas, it's likely that the hair sample came from it, they conclude. Sykes announced last year that he was planning on his own expedition to the Himalayas to search for his mystery bear. After the results of Gutierrez and Pine were published, he's pretty much gone publicly silent on the topic of that expedition. Gutierrez and Pine note that such an expedition would be, quote, a waste of time, money, and effort. There are at least 16 museum specimens of Ursus arctos that were collected from the Himalayas. If there really is a mystery bear species roaming that mountainous region, scientists should start their search by heading to the museum and checking the DNA that's already there, unquote. So back in January, I reported on a story of why cat bites are so horrible. The upshot is that they are dangerous because cats harbor some seriously nasty pathogens in their mouths. Well, I think it's time to report on the distaff end of things. What about dog saliva? Was Lucy from the Charlie Brown cartoon correct? Are dog germs as horrendous as cat germs? Worse? Well, the answer may be surprising. It appears that when Fido drags his saliva-drenched tongue across your face, man's best friend may be doing you a microbial favor, as well as showing you affection. It was reported in the popular press a couple of weeks ago that the very well-known bacterial biome researcher, Dr. Rob Knight, newly hired by the University of California in San Diego, and his team are recruiting people for a study of whether living with a dog improves the human microbiome. In a press release, he said, quote, We essentially want to find out, is a dog acting like yogurt in having a probiotic effect? The idea of combining animal, human, and environmental health and seeing the whole picture through the lens of the microbes that we share is an increasing direction for research, unquote. 
He also states that multiple lines of evidence suggest dog microbiota may have a beneficial effect on people. One of the paradoxes of modern times is that despite the unprecedented cleanliness of the modern West, allergies and inflammatory diseases have increased. The lack of bacteria, most of which are harmless and some even beneficial, may be to blame under what's called the old friends hypothesis. The idea is that humans evolved with bacteria and grew accustomed to them being around. Knight says, quote, those bacteria that we call old friends became teachers of tolerance from the immune system. They took over the job of training the immune system not to react to things that are irrelevant, like pollen. There is epidemiological work showing that kids raised with dogs don't tend to get allergies and asthma. So we think that dogs have anti-inflammatory effects based on effects in kids. And increasingly, we think now that maybe it's because of sharing the microbiota. There are data that families that have dogs share as much of their microbiota with the dogs as they do with each other, unquote. Well, dog lovers, take note that Knight specifically refers to dogs and not cats. I guess the cats probably cause more inflammation than they prevent. He goes on to say, quote, another piece of evidence is that when the microbiome of people over 65 gets bad, they're much more likely to become frail, get sick, and die. Data suggests that dogs can change people's microbiota for the better, unquote. Since some of the benefits of living with dogs are doubtless psychological, Knight says that they will have to measure changes in microbiota to help distinguish the psychological effect from the microbial. People 50 and older are being sought for the study. Participants must not have taken antibiotics or lived with a dog in the last six months. They will be provided with a dog from the Humane Society to live with for three months, and they can choose what kind of dog they want and have the option of even adopting the dog when the study is over. At the start, the gut microbes of the human participants will be non-invasively assessed along with their diet, activity, and immune system function. Dog gut microbes and activity will be assessed at the same time. Reassessments will take place at the end of the first, second, and third months to determine whether there are any benefits to the microbiome of the people or the dogs. Changes in mental health of humans and dogs will also be assessed. Dogs co-evolved with humans for tens of thousands of years. Scientists generally agree that the symbiosis was important to human civilization. Dogs evolved from wolves, acquiring a predisposition for human companionship and a recognition of people as the top dog, well, at least most of the time. It'll be really interesting to find out from Knight's study whether our coevolution has benefited humans down to the microbial level. The last story of the night involves life extension. Now, we've covered this topic before many times in past podcasts, but let's revisit it again with some new information. As we have discussed previously, it is generally accepted as one of life's unfortunate but inevitable facts that although we might be able to disguise the wrinkles for a time with things like plastic surgery and the like, aging will get us all in the end. Some scientists are now questioning whether it has to be that way or whether age is simply another disease that might one day be conquered. American researchers have suggested that the elixir of eternal youth, well, or at least extended middle age, may be on the horizon. Two scientists, Dr. Paul Robbins and Laura Niedernhofer from the Scripps Research Institute, 
report this month in the journal Aging Cell that they have discovered a new class of drugs which they have dubbed senolytics. Senolytics are drugs which delay the aging process. The paper states, quote, The prototypes of these senolytic agents have more than proven their ability to alleviate multiple characteristics associated with aging. It may eventually become feasible to delay, prevent, alleviate, or even reverse multiple chronic diseases and disabilities as a group instead of just one at a time, unquote. Senescent cells are cells that have stopped dividing, and they accumulate with age and accelerate the aging process. Since the quote-unquote health span, that's the time of your life in which you're free from disease, in mice is enhanced by killing off these cells, the scientists reason that finding treatments that accomplish this in humans could have tremendous potential. The scientists were faced with the question, though, of how to identify and target senescent cells without damaging other cells. The team suspected that senescent cells' resistance to death by stress and damage could provide a clue. And indeed, using transcript analysis, looking at RNA expression, the researchers found that like cancer cells, senescent cells have increased expression of pro-survival networks. And that helps them resist programmed cell death, uh, the process of being killed off in in a programmed manner by the body. And this finding provides clues or provided key criteria to searching for potential drug candidates. And using those criteria, the team homed in on one or two available compounds. One of the first they found was the cancer drug desatinib, and another was quercetin. And quercetin is a natural compound which is sold as a supplement, and it acts as an antihistamine and anti-inflammatory agent. Further testing in cell culture showed that those compounds do selectively induce the death of senescent cells. The two compounds had different strong points. Desatinib eliminated senescent human fat cell progenitors, while quercetin was more effective against senescent human endothelial cells and mouse bone marrow stem cells. And it turns out that a combination of the two is really quite effective. After finding that the drugs had a positive effect in tissue culture, the team then looked at how the drugs affected aging and health in mice. Niedernhofer stated, quote, In animal models, the compounds improved cardiovascular function and exercise endurance. They reduced osteoporosis and frailty and seemed to extend health span. Remarkably, in some cases, these drugs did so with only a single course of treatment, unquote. In old mice, the cardiovascular function was improved within five days of a single course of the drugs. A single dose of a combination of the drugs led to improved exercise capacity in animals weakened by radiation therapy used for cancer. The effect lasted for at least seven months following treatment with the drugs. Periodic drug administration of mice with accelerated aging extended the health span of the mice, delayed age-related symptoms, spine degeneration, and osteoporosis. It sounds like a miracle, but the authors caution that more drug testing is needed before use in humans. They also note both drugs in the study have possible side effects, at least with long-term treatment. The researchers, however, remain upbeat about their finding potential. 
They state in the paper, quote, senescence is involved in a number of diseases and pathologies, so there could be any number of applications for these and similar compounds. Also, we anticipate that treatment with senolytic drugs to clear damaged cells would be infrequent, reducing the chances of side effects, unquote. Interestingly, I find the quercetin angle here kind of funny. I mean, one of the things I've studied over the years is the production of anthocyanin pigments in plants. Uh, quercetin is related to the anthocyanin pigments. And many fruits and vegetables contain the compound, including blueberries, red apples, watercress, sweet potatoes. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and eat a bunch of fruit to stay young, but it is fascinating that many fruits and vegetables that contain quercetin have been connected to anti-inflammatory effects for many years long before this study. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Have a big bowl of blueberries on me. Let your dog slobber to his heart's content upon you. Keep those insulating rubber boots on you while you walk the Amazon River. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go, Jim. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much, sir. So, main fiction, we're going to jump straight into the main fiction. And like I said, Jeremy interviewed Grimdark Magazines last week. And this is like a, a story, you know, from their magazine. So, it's nice to just kind of publish, you know, get the word out about new magazines and, you know, kind of on that, on that road to trying to get their voice heard as well. So... This writer is T.R. Napper. I'll give you a little heads up about T.R. Napper. T.R. Napper is a 2014 Writers of the Future winner. He has had fiction published in Interzone 254 and Interzone 256, a mock, an anthology of Asian Pacific speculative fiction writers, Grimdark Magazine number two, and others. He is an aid worker, stay at home parent, and writer. He has spent the last decade living and working throughout Southeast Asia. He is an Australian, Australian currently living in Hanoi, Vietnam. His Twitter account is Darkling Earth and his website is nappatime.com. <laughs> great website. That. Pop over the front of our website there and check out that. That's, I love that. That's a great. That, that domain is fantastic. Nappatime. <laughs> fantastic. This story is narrated by the, the, the Mason, who's turned out some fantastic narrations of late. Mark Killifold. Mark, what can I say? A big, big thank you. I've got some links as well on Mark's site if you can want to pop over to the front of Starship Sova and have a look there. That would be fantastic. Oh, there will be in... Actually, I didn't realise it. They'll be in the show notes, which kind of come to your, your mobile devices and all your kind of gizmos that you listen to kind of Starship Sova. So there you go. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Line by T.R. Knapper This is going to hurt. George held the goateed man in an armbar, face down on the canvas. The man managed to turn his head to one side and gasp, No! George bent down, easing the strain on the arm for a moment. Sweat rolled down his brow, from the tip of his nose onto the man's back. He whispered, Yes. Break her! Break her! Break her! 
the waves of the chant broke across his concentration. The floodlights centered on the cage burned his eyes. But beyond, in the twilight of the stadium, he could see it was packed, as usual. Most had come straight from work, wearing the red and fluorescent yellow coveralls of the operators, or the blue and yellow of the mine technicians. There were a smattering of brown faces in the crowd, but that mob usually stayed away from fight night. Understandable. Emotions always got a little high by the end. In the front row were the dark-suited executives, on their feet with the rest of the crowd, punching their fists in the air. A glass-steel partition separated their comfortable faux-leather seats from the plastic provided to the rest of the crowd. The redhead, Langer, was there, of course, in his regular front-row spot, his white shirt soaked through with sweat. He pointed his rust-red Akubra at George's opponent, bringing it up and down like he was trying to break the man's arm himself. George shook his head against the noise, against the heat of the room. The air conditioners were on full blast, but five thousand sweating, jostling bodies made the atmosphere dense, inescapable. George looked down at his opponent. Fight night couldn't end with a submission. One fighter had to be unconscious, incapacitated, or dead. George ended most fights by breaking his opponent's arm. The corporation gave a medical exemption for injuries received on fight night, fixed the fighter free of charge, even used nanotech to knit the bones, have them back at work in a couple of days. A break was the easy way out, merciful even, except for this moment. George levered the arm until he felt the snap vibrate through his hands, sharp and final. He let the limb drop. The goateed men writhed on the canvas, clutching at his elbow. George stood to his full height, his lean muscles coated with sweat. He looked around at the crowd, faces all in shadow. Breaker! 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 The tumult grew. They chanted his name over and over again. George didn't acknowledge them. He walked to the side of the cage. His corner man passed him a towel and water bottle over the top. Too easy. George drank deeply, then handed the bottle back. Yes. He mopped his face with the towel and waited for the announcer to make it official. Then he walked over the steel gate. It clicked open. He ducked his head as he stepped out. Two fighters, stripped to the waist, waited to enter for the next bout. George moved quickly up the stairs between the stands, away from the cage. The crowd reached out to him, patted him on the back, called out his name. He let the sound wash over him. The hands he brushed aside. The cochlear glyph implant behind his left ear, silent during the bout, started broadcasting as soon as he left the cage. As he glanced up at the giant scoreboard above the stands, the sea glyph whispered the odds for the next fight. When he looked away, the feed switched to the murmurs of the commentators discussing the match. The only time the implant was silent was in the ring. How he looked forward to those rare minutes when the itching in his mind finally ceased. George made his way to the change room and sat heavily on a hard plastic bench. He held out his arm while his corner man undid the bindings on his fist. Know what that fight was, George? I wouldn't call it a fight, Burgess smiled. He had a round face, pleasant, some would say, if not for the telltale redness of his neck and bloodshot eyes. Not many would. He threw the fist strap away and began work on the second. That victory made you the most successful cage fighter in the free zones. Is that so? They've been talking about it through the interwave all week. Burgess tapped his finger behind his left ear against his own sea implant. Haven't you been watching? 
You certainly can't help listening to it. I've learned to tune it out. His corner man laughed. No wonder you're still sane. He paused, pulling a small capsule out of his shirt pocket. Different strokes. George pointed his chin at the pill. That shit will rot your brain. Probably. Burgess shrugged. What difference does it make here? All the difference in the world. Burgess raised his eyebrows. Really? I'm not the one spending all my spare time getting kicked to the head. George smiled. I'll kick you in the head free of charge. You get the same result as that shit. He pointed at the powder. And save yourself some money. Burgess returned the smile. And you wonder why you don't have any friends. I never wonder. Friends are a liability. So is having broken the arm of half the people you work with. George grunted. <laughs> True enough. True enough. This corner man cracked the capsule between his teeth, closing his eyes for a few moments. When he opened them again, he seemed to find it hard to focus. This can't last forever, George. What? Burgess scratched the side of his face slowly, pointed vaguely at the room. This? George looked at his fist, flexing it. Yeah, I know, Burgess. I know. George sat alone at one of the long tables of the mess hall. A score of rows were in the hall. Each could seat more than a hundred. The morning diners moved around him quickly, ate quickly, departed quickly. No one wanted to be late. In the distance were the cyclical tunes and bells of the slot machines. George took a bite of cornbread and scooped some beans. He grunted. Not much flavor in either. The entertainment screen built into the breakfast counter murmured at him through his implant. He ignored it. The endless stories of imminent war bored him. He didn't want to look at the betting markets either. The line on live female births next year in Szechuan province, or the line on soya tonnage harvested in Hunan for June, nor was he interested in placing a few credits on the temperature range down in Perth on the next Wednesday, or the odds of rain falling in the free economic zone any time in the next six months. Weather investments weren't his thing. None of the markets were, for that matter. Well, except for one. Fight night. George tapped the scratched touchscreen, flicking past the markets and news feeds, until he found the icon for solitaire. George was halfway through his second game, when three ascending tones sounded in his ear. The voice of the sea glyph, flat and uninflected, followed. Probationary citizen George Dolgarni, you are required at an executive meeting in the gaming hall in three minutes. George glanced down at the timestamp on the counter screen. If I do that, I'll be late for my shift. Your shift has been cancelled, courtesy of Vice President Langer. George raised an eyebrow. The redhead himself? I'm honored. An understandable reaction. George returned to tapping his finger on the solitaire game, sipping at a cup filled with a thin, bitter liquid they insisted on calling coffee. After a minute, Mr. Dongari, why are you not proceeding to your meeting? George indicated the entertainment screen with his hand. Just savoring my day off. The Seaglyph artificial intelligence couldn't see him gesture, of course, just force a habit. He'd never got used to having conversations with voices inside his head since arriving in the zones. For every minute you are late to a meeting with an executive, you will be given a productivity penalty, said the voice, with the rhythm of a metronome. Cheers. You're very efficient. Efficiency is productivity's midwife, quoted the voice. So is the whip. The usual response from the AI when perplexed by a statement was to act as if it hadn't heard it. Pretty human in that regard as well. You are now one minute late for your meeting. A productivity penalty has been applied to this quarter's pay. George sighed and stood, wiping his mouth on his sleeve. The sound of the slots was deafening, 
As he entered the large archway at the rear of the cafeteria, five thousand machines spewed sound and fury into the dark, cavernous hall. To one side of the door, an image of languor shimmered into life. He was half a head shorter than George, and nearly a full body wider. He wore his usual tailored black suit and rust-red akubra. His trousers were a couple of inches too high, the grin on his face a little too wide. Breaker, so glad you could join me. George walked over. Are you a projection of the actual Langer, or are you one of his day copies? The simulation of the man shrugged. Not relevant. If you're speaking to me, you're speaking to Langer. We carry the same authority. So you're a day copy. The two-wide grin was shortening. The vice president receives a download directly from his day copies every 24 hours, summarizing all of our decisions. In the five years he has been in his position, he's yet to change or even question one of those decisions. George looked him up and down. They certainly feed you well in the executive. Langer's eyes flashed. You want to play it that way, he said. That suits me fine. I'm here to discuss business, not enjoy the stellar conversation skills of a cage fighter. He pointed at one of the aisles between the slots. Let's walk. The vice president moved into the gloom. George hesitated for a moment. You're the most successful fighter in the history of the free zones, Breaker, he said, though his tone didn't make it sound like a compliment. George said nothing. You've become something of a legend here in Free Zone 3, but this success has its consequences. The odds for your fights have left you almost unmackable these days. Pretty soon, no one left will bet on you. I will. Langer nodded, but not in agreement. Sure, I've seen your record, same as everyone. You've made good money on yourself, especially at the start. But these days, you face diminishing returns. He stopped lifted his akubra up with one hand, and wiped a gleam of sweat off his forehead with a white handkerchief. He pointed at George with a closed fist. How'd you like to make some real money? George winced and started moving again down the aisle. Rows upon rows of faces, brown and white, sat at the machines with eyes glazed or closed. The players held one thumb out, pressed on the glowing red pad on the front of the slot, making the reels spin and spin again. George felt the tugging on his implant as he passed each machine, each one reaching out, asking him to play, the familiar ache returning for a moment. Here in the hall, if he closed his eyes, the nanos attached to his optic nerves would activate. A perfect three-dimensional image of each machine would appear in the darkness behind his eyeballs. A few lines of script would provide the current jackpot on the machine, the comps accrued from playing, a woman chosen by complex algorithm to appeal to George's tastes, would sit smiling in front of the glittering hypnotic pattern of the wheels. The vision of the room would be crystal clear, clean and bright, with smiling patrons and carpet that didn't stick to the soles of the shoe. No wonder so many played with their eyes closed. George waved a hand at the banks of machines. This was all I did when I first arrived. Cut into it real quick. But that's the way the corporation set it all up, right? It's just this or the dope. Langer placed his handkerchief back in the top pocket of his jacket. We're in the middle of the desert. People need to be entertained. George stared straight ahead as he walked. I'd work twelve hours, come back and play for four more, and collapse into my bunk. I'd wake up in the morning and my implant would be urging me to play. I'd see the slots behind my eyelids, floating, waiting. But I didn't need any encouragement. I'd always get an hour in before work. I could never stop thinking about it when I wasn't playing, and I never wanted to stop when I'd started. It got to the point where winning or losing didn't matter anymore, even though, of course, I was losing everything. In the first two years here, I never slept with a woman, got into a fight, 
or popped an ice nine. Langer shrugged, glancing over the machines as they passed. This isn't a nanny state. People's personal choices are their own. George stopped and looked at the man. Then it got really bad. I went at it for three days straight. Lost for three days straight. Missing work. I couldn't distinguish between playing the slots and dreaming about them. What was real? What was imagined? So exhausted, I had some sort of seizure. Thrashing around on the floor until they sedated me and put me in the infirmary. I remember how the corporation gave me a few days off to recuperate. You know where your mob sent me? George clenched his fists, his knuckles cracking. Langer's eyes had glazed over. I don't know where we send the addicts and the weak, and I don't really care. You piece of shit! George threw the punch he'd wanted to throw for six years, his fist driving into Langer's face. His hand, of course, passed clean through, hitting the face of the slot behind. The machine rocked, a crack appearing across the screen. Though a simulation, Langer jumped back a step, mouth parted in surprise. George stepped close, his voice low. You gave me a free hotel room at a casino in the wreck quad. A fucking casino. He pointed a bloodied fist at Langer. You want me to throw the fight? The surprise had already slipped Langer's face. His eyes went hard, like water over smooth stone. In the third minute of the second round. Why? Hope Corporation owns every slot machine in the free zone. Have your workers go broke on them before their contracts are up, and then you own them too. You are the book for fight night, so you're winning every time I win anyway. You don't need the money. Even a big score in this fight is trivial for the corporation. Nothing is trivial here. What does that mean? Why this fight? Langer looked him over, eyes shining in the reflected glow of the machines. It really was a very good day copy. I might be a vice president, Breaker, but in the end, I'm just a company man. I'm a company man because I always put the corporation first. It'd be smart to show everyone that you can, too. Yeah, it would, said George, looking down at his hand. One of his knuckles was split and bleeding. There are a hundred types of pain in the world. It's impossible to avoid them all. As far as George could figure, the only choice you had about it was which one you'd embrace. He looked up. Here's your answer. Fuck you. Langer shook his head, eyes gleaming under the shadow of the Kubra. Just wait until I find out about this. You've made a very big mistake. Wouldn't be my first. George turned and walked away. When they pulled the bag from his head, the light blinded him. He coughed, barely able to breathe in the heat and thin red dust. His body ached from where they had beaten him with their force batons. After they had dragged him from his bunk, late at night, and set upon him. Behind him stood a half-dozen security personnel, black sentinels silhouetted against the maddening heat. A second figure stood directly next to George. As his eyes adjusted to the light, he saw it was Burgess. One side of the corner man's round face was swollen, his bottom lip split. He smiled weakly. You might be right about that liability thing. Less than a meter in front of them, the edge of the yawning chasm of the great Yandy pit. One kilometer deep, maybe five wide, the wind whipped at their clothes, pulling at them, beckoning them toward the abyss. A black Humvee rested nearby in the crushed red rock. The door slid open. Inside sat the vice president. In the flesh, he held the Akubra in his hands. He seemed to be adjusting the brim. I'm asking you twice. 
Lose your next fight, George. George's voice came out in a croak. Not going to happen. Langer looked up, nodded at the guards. One stepped forward and brought his force rod down the back of Burgess's head. George turned. No! Burgess pitched forward. He was looking at George with bloodshot eyes when they struck him. He seemed surprised. His mouth was open, trying to speak. George looked after him as he disappeared into the depths of the pit. His chest heaved. It felt like he was choking. Motherfucker! Why, yes. Yes, I am, said Langer. George tried to speak, but let out a sob. He fell to his knees. The redhead watched him from the cool and shadow of the vehicle. Really, George? That's all it takes? One dead drug addict? Maybe you're not the man I thought you were. George coughed, cleared his throat. The ground was warm under his knees, the sun stinging the back of his neck. You're the one sitting behind ten men. Come over here, little man. Come over here and I'll show you who I am. Langer smiled. That's more like it. You'll need to bring some of that to the ring for your next fight, but not too much. He turned and swung his legs over the side of the seat, so he was facing George. We have a problem, Breaker. It's the audience, the punters, the... He gestured with his left hand. The people. They love you and fear you. These are powerful things, powerful emotions. The problem, as I see it, is this. You didn't earn these things by yourself. Far from it. You're a freeloader. You've manipulated our system. The one we invented, built, and paid for. An operation like this, like Hope Corporation, isn't an accident. It's a work of art. You see, what you're doing by using the system to your own advantage is taking us for a ride. And there are no free rides here in Hope Corporation. The user pays. The vice president ran one finger along the brim of the Akubra. This law is immutable. The user always pays. George watched him in silence. So you'll throw this fight. He pointed at the pit with his hat. Or you'll follow your friend. And if we do have to put you in, well, everyone will think you're just another jumper who couldn't take the heat, the desert, and the time. Another brown stain baking at the bottom of the Yandy. Soon forgotten. We win either way. The redhead placed the Akubra on his brow carefully. So, what's your answer? George closed his eyes for half a minute. When he opened them, he looked at the place where Burgess had been standing. He slowly got to his feet. I'll take the fight. He'd drunk hard after Yandy. Missed work, knowing they wouldn't care. Wouldn't dock his pay. Wouldn't say a thing. And he played again. Yeah, he played. Six years of living clean, saving his pay, betting on himself in fight night. Small fortune. In three weeks it was all gone. The last of his liabilities sunk into the slots. So when he stood, finally, in front of the tumult, he felt light as air. Breaker! 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 The crowd was as big, as loud as it had ever been. A fighter with a heavy jaw looked at him through slitted eyes. He moved forward slowly across the canvas, watching George from behind two large fists. George stood, arms by his sides, watching the man. He smiled a small smile. The man paused, lowered his fist slightly. What? What are you grinning at? 
This is going to hurt. There you go. Big thank you to Grimdog Magazine and TR Nappers. Don't forget, copyright is TR Nappers and uh, Mr. Mark Killerfall. Mark, what can I say? A big hug, sir. Getting to know you down there. A big bear hug. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. So, like I say, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. And a number of times I've keep on saying Octagon Technologies, but it's not Octagon Technology. Like I say, 20 years of fixing people's computers. They used to drive the clients. Now we can help them remotely across the internet. And I remember them days, you know, going and traveling places, do you know what I mean? And just like trying to help someone and my limited knowledge, do you know what I mean? Just kind of trying to get something set up. You had to go there. Now it's just amazing how you can kind of do all this remotely. Do you know what I mean? 1995 to 2015, Octagon Technology, helping businesses with their ID problems. Just amazing. Big round of applause. So a couple of little house cleaning official announcements as well. Don't forget, come over and sign up to the YouTube page or, you know, Starship Sofa's YouTube page. Just type in Starship Sofa YouTube or come to the front of the website. I'll put a link on there as well. Just, I put out a picture on Facebook I think I did it on, on all the kind of platforms. And it was just, you know, like a snapshot of me sitting down doing it. Do you know what I mean? And it, it was amazing because a whole load of people kind of subscribed to that channel. Do you know what I mean? I haven't even got a... There's not even a video out yet. Yeah, I've got the old videos out. But nothing as yet, you know, kind of is out. But it honestly soon, soon, soon will be. Got all the kind of artwork and all the kind of graphics and everything done off Scott. Big thank you to Scott for that. What a star, you know what I mean? Kind of trying to work with me is a bit, um, a bit hideous. You know? <laughs> no, I want, no, I want Cerise. I want Cerise colours. <laughs> temperamental artist. So, got all that kind of stuff there now. And that's like you say, YouTube's going to be Starships with our HQ. And I think that's really up and fitting. Do you know what I mean? Because this is headquarters. Do you know what I mean? This is where I'm at. And you'll actually get to see see us as well and i think as well you know it's it's taken on in my mind you know what i mean which is not that big and clever anyways but it's taken on a whole new thing this youtube you know because when i first initially sat down to kind of talk about it and you know the, the concept of it it was very much kind of rigid you know this is what we're going to do i want to do kind of almost mini documentary style shows and the more it's kind of coming off and the more i think about oh i could bring in that cunt and that cunt it's just having a kind of a flourishing effect so at this moment i haven't got a clue which way it's going to be do you know what I mean? which way it's going to go and i think that mind you that's always been the case of starship sofa you know i get an idea and i kind of all oh, right we'll kind of bring in that do you know what i mean a great great example is jeremy doing these kind of new little interviews you know all right bring in that you know, I remember doing Here and Now, I think it was, like Here and Now, where I kind of, an old story and a new story, do that, you know, the 10 minutes, you know, giving someone a voice, a new writer a voice, let them read their story for 10 minutes, just little ideas. So that's probably how, you know, the Starship Sofa's HQ will go as well. You know, I won't see, see how it goes, but it'd be lovely to kind of come over there and if you can subscribe and watch the, you know, what watches. This face for radio is about to <laughs> go put yourself right in, the, right in the spotlight. And last thing as well, what I'm actually doing is now taking a serious kind of, you know what I mean, come on, so you get, 
kick up the arse and trying to get the newsletter all up and kind of running nicely and properly. Because it's left to me and I'm kind of shocking with it now, but I've kind of made a decision. We're going to kind of kick off like a new, not a new, you know, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll still get the, the, the kind of newsletters. But I'm going to try and make it regular as well. Do you know what I mean? Kind of keep things going regular. And I've got that link on the, the front of the website as well, so you can sign up. And I'm also going to pull in from the, you know, like Tales to Terrify and Farfetch Fables and get their, you know, views and things, what's going on. Make a, like, a nice newsletter, you know what I mean? So just make it interesting as well. And it's never really been that at, at this time, you know what I mean? So I'm kind of committed, shall we say. There we go. So finally, we have an interview with who Jeremy carried out with Bane Books editor Brian Thomas Schmidt, who's got a new anthology out called Speculations, or who's hoping to get a new anthology out there. It's on Kickstarter there now. Jeremy, sir. Hello, everyone. This is Jeremy Zahl, the assistant editor for Starship Sofa. And today we have an interview with an editor, more specifically a guy who does editing for Bane Books. Uh, he's got a few contract anthologies at the moment. And so far, he's done several uh, anthologies for Bane Books with several high dozen, several really, really high-class authors such as George R. R. Martin, Glenn Cook, Cat uh, Rambo, and dozens of others. And today, he's just here to talk about his projects and what exactly he's looking for and his past projects. So, Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Yeah, no worries. And so, basically, out of all the anthologies that you've done, which is your favorite, would you say? That's like asking somebody who their favorite kid is. Probably whichever one I'm working on at the moment. Mm, and which one is that? They exactly? all have a special place in your heart. You know, the first one you did kind of means something. And I'm very proud of... I'm kind of proud of the progression because I think I get better with each anthology. And that's something that is part of the craft of being an anthologist. So I take particular pride in that. I mean, if you, my favorite anthology of the moment is probably uh, Galactic Games for Bayon, which doesn't come out till 2016, but I'm, I'm reading the stories now and picking them, so I'm all excited about it. But Mission Tomorrow, which comes out in August, has already been turned in, and I'm very excited about that one, and I think that's the best one I've done yet. Hopefully this one will be even better. So, I mean, I, it, it, it's whatever one I'm working on at the time. Yeah, so I suppose you always try to do better with each one, but I suppose the first one always does feel kind of special. It's that one short story that um, the first one that you've sold, it's always the most special one. So what exactly do you look for in the submissions that you get? Well, you know, I, there's a lot of cliche things I could say, like good writing. I mean, but really, Good writing, she's like, probably a priority somewhere. Yeah, a good story. Mm. Everybody's like, oh, great, great, that helps me. No, I mean, you know, the thing is, but those really are the things you look for. The other thing I'm looking for is I'm looking for something different. Hmm. Uh, I want a different take on, you know, every, it's, it's been said before that every idea has been done before, and it, to a degree it has. So if you can find a new way to tell me an old story, I'm particularly intrigued. If you find a way to tell something that I, that I haven't seen before, I'm really going to get excited about that. And, and beyond that, um, you know, I just look for a variety so if I already have something that's too similar to your story, you're going to get rejected whether your story is good or not. Mm. So I suppose even the most fantastic writing, it doesn't really hold up if the story is abysmal and it doesn't really, and if the, if the story is fantastic, but it's been done a million times before with absolutely no twists, then I suppose it all falls flat on its head. And of course you need good writing in there as well. So there's a lot of stuff to consider, but yeah, what would well, you yeah, there's the 
Yeah, I mean, there's personal, there's personal taste too, you know, mm. Jeremy. Because like I rejected stories from Larry Niven and other people that I just didn't huh. think were a good fit for, for me. That were reprint stories, and it, and I I rejected a Kim Lou story. Uh, we rejected it from Shattered Shields because it wasn't it wasn't a good fit for the anthology, and I hated it. I was like, I'm going to be the, like the only editor in town who's rejected Kim Lou. I felt really bad about it. Yeah, but you know, Ken found a home for the story later. And it just wasn't a good fit for what we were doing, and he didn't have time to make the changes we were at. Yeah, it's a good so, thing. Uh, yeah. It's better for us not to take it than have somebody... The problem is, look, if I pick your story and it's either not good enough or it doesn't fit, it's going to stand out. And you're, you're going to get criticized for it, which is, which is me not doing you a favor. I'll get criticized for it, too. But look, if I say, oh, I like Jeremy... I'm going to buy his story. Oh, yeah, his story's not professional yet, but I'm going to put it in here with George R. R. Martin. People are going to read it, and they're going to say, oh, crap. What the hell is this? Why is this story even in here? And then you're going to feel like crap. Yeah, and then they're going to be coming down your door with axes, axes rendering when they're getting in the guillotine. So I suppose, well, yeah. Publisher, publisher won't want to give me their money to spend on an anthology again, which is a problem that I might have hmm. if they think I'm not going to pick the best stories. But realistically... I'm not doing you a favor if because people are going to compare you to the other authors of the book. And when I do have people like Silverberg and, and Martin and others that I'm working with, you want your story to be worthy of the task. Oh, definitely, so yeah. Only bad author in the whole piece because that's no fun either. Yeah, and if it's supposed like if you're aiming for a particular uh, genre, for example, I think uh, George is actually doing the anthology Old Mars at the moment. And I'm sure he's, he might have, for, if he was open to submissions, he's probably not, but if he was, and he got a story that was not really one of those homages to the 1920s and 30s style of science fiction, it doesn't matter how good it is, it, it likely just wouldn't have been acceptable because it didn't fit in with what he was doing. It's the same with us. There's, I've received some fantastic stories from authors who, who've got 30 books on the shelves, but it just wasn't right for the podcast. And it was really hard to say no, but I had to because it just wasn't right. It just didn't fit in with what we were doing. And it wasn't even the right genre as much as I would have loved to accept it. It was fantasy and we're a science fiction department. So it, it's hard, but that's what you have to do, I suppose. Well, and I think to a degree, as you become a professional, that that's one of the things you learn. And I mean, you know, I, if anything, pitching anthologies has taught me how to handle rejection much better because as an author it always hurts so much because it's a piece of your heart that's on that page yeah. you're pitching anthology ideas you're pitching as many ideas as you can trying to find one that somebody will give you money to make and so you quickly learn it's not personal it's about whatever else they got going on I've had anthologies rejected because they're like you know what I bought something that's too similar to this last week we'd have to we, you know hit me back in three years I might buy it but right now I'm not going to do this yeah so each so it's, not, yeah. it's not always about your story sucks. You have to understand that that's why I always make it a rule that I try to give feedback on any story I reject, mm. which is why I put my pool. Because if I did an open call, there's a lot of reasons for the, not having an open call, but that's one of them. That way I can actually personalize my responses and give helpful criti critiques because it sucks to get a rejection and not know what you could do to fix it that might make the story sellable somewhere. Yeah, I suppose, like, I understand there are a lot of magazines don't do that, obviously. There are some that do personalize rejections, like Beneath the Cecil's Skies, and this stuff has helped me tremendously. But it is a shame sometimes when you send your story out there and they just get slapped with a rejection. You have no idea why. It doesn't help anyone, but I understand the uh, cons time constraints. I don't like it, but I can understand it. But it's fantastic if you do try to um, 
give reasons why you rejected a story. I mean, and it helps you grow as a editor as well because it helps you visualize exactly what was wrong with a story and why it just didn't oh, yeah. fit in. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I suppose there's a lot to learn from both sides. So out of all the authors that you've worked with, who do you think is probably uh, your favorite? Who's been the most successful and pleasant to work with? So you're going to make, make me make me make other people angry if I don't name Yeah, I'm going to do it I again. If You can look at my anthologies and see the people that I use over and over again and pretty yeah, much figure out who they are. Yeah, it's a track record, really. It's a fantastic well, uh, list of people. Yeah, I mean, like, I've worked with Sean McGuire now three times, and I love Sean. I mean, Sean turns in these great stories that I hardly have to edit. Elizabeth Moon um, does the same thing. Mm, she's fantastic. Um, I, yeah, I mean... Literally, they hardly require any editing or cleanup. Their stories are so clean, but they come in. They just do a great job. I work with Mike Resnick a lot, you know, and I work with Chris Rush. And I'm huge fans of all these people's work. So, I mean, these are people that I work with a lot. David Farland. I mean, so there's a lot of these people that send me work all the time that you'll see in several of my anthologies. Um, Robin Wayne Bailey, who's a local guy that's a friend of mine. Uh, you know, you'll see these guys over and over in a lot of my anthologies. And that's because we're, we're friends and I'm a fan of their work, and they always send me good stories. Uh, and so they make it makes it easy to edit. And there are also people who, if you put their name on the front of the anthology, people will buy the books. So that makes it even better. Yeah, but at the same time, as you said, it, it also needs to fit in with what you're doing. Because they can't just dra- drag up any old crap that's buried at the bottom of the... Uh Buried at the bottom of the hard drive, and just say, throw it at you, and say, "Oh yeah, here's here's something. Hopefully, you'll fit in with the theme. It has to conform to the theme that you're working on." Well, it's funny because Speculations KC, which is the Kickstarter anthology I'm doing right now, I actually can take more broad stories than I usually can because we're covering stories that are either authors or stories are tied to the Kansas City area because uh, it's a Worldcon anthology for 2016. So. I could take stories from people that I normally would say, oh, this is not narrow enough for my theme mm. because I have this whole, as long as they either come from Kansas City or they're tied to Kansas City in some way or they set their story in Kansas City, I can take it. So that's one of those rare cases where I can have a really broad theme. And my YA anthology choices, which will come out um, in 2016 too, was kind of the same way. So I got a broader swath of stories. A lot of times with themes, yeah, it really is narrow. So you need the authors that you like are authors that have a lot of range. And that's why I, you know, I, I try to try out a lot of new authors and I, I feature a lot of up-and-coming authors that I know have range, because I know that if I invite them over and over, they're going to write all kinds of different things for me and always do something that's interesting and good that can fit in my project. Hmm. So you'll see me working with people like Alex Schwartzman a lot and I work with Kat Ramble quite a bit and, I, you know, uh, Annie Bellet and uh, Wendy Wagner and all these people are people that I have used on a regular basis in a number of my projects because they consistently send me stuff that I can use, even though they're not all big names yet. I mean, you know, Wendy's starting to make her name for herself, and Kat is definitely doing that. Oh, she's definitely, yeah. Yeah, they all are as well, but I'm just saying that those are the... So how do you become an anthologist's favorite author? Learn how to write a good range of things, not Mm. just one but, of course, if you are really good at that one thing, if you write it really, really well, you'll still get work. Yeah, but I suppose it is good to have a vari- uh, diverse variety of things so you're not a one-trick pony. I mean, even Stephen King, he's a horror writer for sure, but his work spans from everything from The Shawshank Redemption to The Mist to um, to It to... Um, what's that? Science, the one with Morgan Freeman, the one Parasitic Aliens. I forgot Dreamweaver or something like that. 
And yeah, his, yeah, yeah. yeah, his work spans a large variety. And like Shawshank Redemption, a lot of people are surprised to learn that's a Stephen King story because it is not what he normally does. But it's his most popular work. People just don't oh, know Green, attribute Green it to Mile. him. Dude, Green Mile was different. Oh, yeah. Green Mile's fantastic as well. But another thing, uh, what your previous question actually led us on to, your previous answer actually led us on to the next question about what your next project is and who's included in it. Yeah, well, actually, I have four. But the one that I'm four, wow! I'm I'm most yeah. I'm doing Galactic Games, which is an Olympic tie-in anthology, and that is that's for Bay, and it'll be out during the Rio Games in the summer of 2016. So I'm really excited about that because we're getting all kinds of sports stories. We're getting a football story from George R. R. Martin, and I've got uh, 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 like a hunting story from Dave Farland, a gymnastic story from Louise uh, Marley. Uh, and a cheerleading story from Esther Friesner, who's hilarious, and a bunch of stuff like that coming in. And then, uh, uh, you know, I've got stories from Ultimate Frisbee and, uh, and, and you know, aliens who force people to play cro- croquet like Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> I've got to read death. that one. To the death. Oh, now I need really so, need to so read that's it. That's pretty cool. And then I've got people like um, uh, in my Speculations KC, I've got George R. R. Martin and Michael Swanwick. And uh, Pat Cadigan is actually trying to write a story for it if she can live long enough, which is really sad to say. But Pat, as everybody knows, is struggling with cancer. But she really wanted to try to do an original story for me. So we're probably going to have one of her last stories. So I hope fun. so. She's a fantastic writer. I've been a fan of work quite some time now. So hopefully we will get it yeah, in. And, and she, yeah. she lived here and was part of the local club a lot. Um, and then we have, uh, I have a couple stories by people who are from the Golden Age and earlier, like, of course, Robert Heinlein, who's the most widely known Kansas City guy. But then we have people like Manly Bannister, who's not as well-known, but had the first ever female werewolf story. And we've got, you know, Tom Remy, who is one of the first gay writers to come out and write um, some really uh, risky stuff and subject matter, uh, gay erotica and different things in his stories. We're going to have one of his stories in our book that he touches on some of those themes. And I've also got... Uh, you know, uh, Frank Kelly, who was a 16-year-old selling Golden Age stories, everything he ever wrote sold, and he only wrote when he was, like, in his teens and 20s, and then he quit, and he became a speechwriter for uh, Harry Truman and a politician. Wow, that's one... Of his life. So, I mean, yeah, that's a really fantastic lineup. Like, that's seriously one of the... There's quite a fantastic lineup. Some really big names in there. Like, I also looked it up. Jim Butcher's in there. George R. R. Martin's in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. really fantastic. I try to remember him on the spot. I'm not looking at the page, but yeah, Jim Butcher, Phyllis Eisenstein. Um, uh, we're hopefully going to have something from J- Kish Johnson. Uh, Grandmaster James Gunn will be in there. William F. Nolan, who wrote Logan's Run. Really? Wow. Brand new story. He turned in a brand new story for me. That's actually like a Bradbury Mars story, and he wrote it as a tribute to his friend Ray Bradbury. So, I mean, we're going to have new stories, and we're going to have some old stories, and we have a great classic cover from 1952 Galaxy by Ed Imschwiller. So it's going to be really cool. Yeah, it's, it's a combining essentially of um, old and new, like new faces and look and uh, new styles and uh, that sort of thing, like almost like a homage to the um, Golden Age, but updated in a way with new authors. Well, it's really, it's really about genre history. There's a mm. lot of 
contributions that people have made that are connected to Kansas City, and because the Worldcon here was very significant for a lot of people, um, C.J. Cherry, for example, is going to be in mm. that. And that was her first Worldcon. Michael Swanwick's first Worldcon was in 1976 in Kansas City. And so for them, it's a, they have a lot of sentimental value to it. Pat Cadigan helped plan that Worldcon. So that, that was something that really meant a lot to a lot of people. And there were some real innovations. We, you know, we got the, the Hugo Award ceremony actually done like an Oscars ceremony. The first time they ever did that was in Kansas City, and uh, it was the first Worldcon that they actually filmed. Star Wars was presented at that con um, before it ever came out with a slideshow, and the producer and Mark Hamill came to the con and did this thing and brought huh. all these props and showed people what the movie was going to be before it ever came out. Wow! And that was a huge thing. That's... And there were a lot of other innovations, too, that you can see on the Kickstarter video that we talk about. So the thing is that um, it's kind of a it's kind of got a lot of sentimental value. But we wanted to basically show that that there are a lot of things that uh, are tied into genre history that have come out of the area that we're proud of and that a lot of people connect with because the Midwest often gets dismissed, at least in the U.S., as, as kind of a. Uh, uh, you know, old-fashioned, backwards people, and and I think there's it's a it's a lot bigger than that. It's a bigger picture than that. We just kind of wanted to give people a glimpse of that. Yeah, that's definitely fantastic. And it's um, currently on Kickstarter at the moment, and hopefully, we, if we can get enough people interested in it, we'll get it funded, and we'll get these a new anthology with a fantastic lineup with all these great new writers and some old uh, old faces. It's definitely something that I'll be looking forward to. Well, I think we've pretty much run out of time. Tony will bite my head off if we go any further. So, Brian Thomas Schmidt, thank you very much for joining with me today. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. All right, no worries. Well, thank you very much. Jeremy, Brian, thank you so much. I will put the link on there so you can go over and support the Kickstarter. Thank you so much. Speculations. Let's hope it makes. So that is it. That's Starship Sofa's 380 put to bed. I hope you've enjoyed it. It has been a blast. Thank you so much. Don't forget, sign up to the newsletter and pop over and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.